This podcast episode is brought to you by Coors Light. These days, everything is go, go, go. It's nonstop hustle all the time. Work, friends, family expect you to be on 24-7. Well, sometimes you just need to reach for a Coors Light because it's made to chill. Coors Light is cold lagered, cold filtered, and cold packaged. It's as crisp and refreshing as the Colorado Rockies. It is literally made to chill. Coors Light is the one I choose when I need to unwind. So when you want to hit reset, reach for the beer that's made to chill. Get Coors Light in the new look delivered straight to your door with Drizzly or Instacart. Celebrate responsibly. Coors Brewing Company, Golden, Colorado. Hey, what's up, everybody? Chris Trapasso here for another episode of the Prospect Podcast. And on today's episode, my regular guest, Matthew Collar of the Purple Insider Podcast, is going to rip my top 50 big board 1.0 to absolute shreds. Uh, Matt, how are you feeling tonight? Are you excited about this endeavor that you're going to uh, just completely tear this apart. <laughs> I am. I have so many questions, but uh, hey. I I would say this, that the amount of work that you put into, um, at, like you said, endeavors like this and making a top 50, um, I'll, I'll, I'll be um, aware of that, that you know a lot more than I do because of what you put into uh, doing things like this. And that said, yes, I'm going to attack you viciously about all of your rankings. So let's just get into it. Let's just start out. Now you have Trevor Lawrence, number one. I mean, that one is number one on everybody's board. He's going to the Jacksonville Jaguars. There's really no question about this. And we've talked a lot about the quarterbacks. And so naturally you have quarterbacks at the top, Zach Wilson, Justin Fields. That makes so much sense and is probably the way that the NFL is leaning. And if it's not, then we'll all be surprised on draft day. And you and I are going to do a whole other episode on Justin Fields. So we won't dive into those yet because we're going to get to those with longer episodes. But right off the bat in the top five, I went, oh, oh, really? Jalen Waddell is your number four and Jamar Chase is your number five. I have not seen very often too many people putting Waddle ahead of Jamar Chase. Chase has been someone that has kind of been a, a consensus or him versus Devontae Smith. So explain Jalen Waddle being as high as he is. I knew that was coming. And that's been a lot of the questions that I've gotten on Twitter since this came out on CBS Sports Monday afternoon. Uh, the main reason is traits. That when you watch Jalen Waddle, or I guess when I watch Jalen Waddle and Jamar Chase back-to-back, they just move different on the field. Jalen Waddle mostly in the slot. Jamar Chase in 2019 played a lot on the outside. Jamar Chase, to me, just to kind of summarize how they're different, Jamar Chase, to me, is like A.J. Brown. Like, he's really physical. He's like six foot, 210, 215, uh, doesn't really beat press coverage with quick feet and dynamic explosion and all that crazy stuff. It's like he bench presses cornerbacks off the line of scrimmage and can sustain his speed down the field, tracks it well deep. We've seen A.J. Brown do that. Kind of reminds me of the Titans wide receiver. Jalen Waddle reminds me legitimately of Tyreek Hill. Like his footwork at the line of scrimmage when he's running routes, changing directions, and then that extra gear down the field plus – the ability to play like he's six foot five in those contested catch situations when he's only five foot ten, like it just kept reminding me of Tyree Kill. So I think Jalen Waddle is a little bit older than Jamar Chase. 
uh, and what Jamar Chase did with those crazy figures at LSU, he did it at 19 years old. That's really impressive. That's why there's not obviously a huge disparity between those two. But watching those three wide receivers, I have Devontae Smith, number six overall, Jalen Waddell's short area quickness and the explosion and then that last gear down the field. He's certainly much faster than Jamar Chase, and I think truly as a route runner, he's a more capable player. Like He can run intricate routes that will create more separation than Jamar Chase. I think Jamar Chase might actually be even a little bit better after the catch because of his contact balance and his strength, and he's bigger. Um, But in today's NFL, it's all about explosive plays, and if I – want to create those, I think Jalen Waddle gives you the best chance with his athleticism off the line and then that extra gear down the field. Something interesting to me about Waddle is the kick returning element, and I don't mm-hmm. mean that he would do that in the NFL. Maybe you do it um, if you need a touchdown and you're in a desperate situation. Uh, or Maybe as a rookie he'll do it and never again. Adrian Peterson back in the day returned kicks as a rookie. So every once in a while, so did uh, Randy Moss, but every once in a while they would throw him back there to return a punt. But I just think when there's a guy who does punt or kick returning in college, it says something about what his coaching staff thinks of his playmaking ability. And that's what I think of when I look at Waddle, is I think that this guy could be someone who is used multi-dimensionally Jamar Chase maybe projects more as an outside wide receiver who is using his physical strength to go up against the the biggest and the strongest outside corners where Waddle is someone that you can use on a jet sweep you can use him in the backfield coming out of the backfield on a route or something to get the ball in his hands and you mentioned it but when the guy jumps up in the air you would Vertical. think he would be yeah. going to the NBA. I mean, there are very uh-huh. few players who can who can jump and explode the way he can. I thought it was interesting, but I don't necessarily disagree with you because if you're asking me, like, which guy would you want the ball in his hands that can make a play by himself if you need him to, it's him decidedly above the other two. And, and if that's a separating point for you, then you would have him ahead of the other two. Yeah, and one last point on these this cluster of the elite wide receivers and having Jalen Waddell as wide receiver number one. Had Jalen Waddell not gotten hurt, and you could factor in the injury, I think his ankle will be fine probably by the start of training camp, certainly by the start of the regular season, most likely. Had he not gotten injured, I don't think this would be a controversial take whatsoever. That like midway through October when that injury happened, like Waddell and Devontae Smith were like producing at the same rate and like I don't think Devontae Smith would have won the Heisman. He wouldn't have had the production and all that market share. And again, Jalen Waddle was making big play after big play in all three phases of the game. You said as, as a kick returner, yards after the catch, running routes, and then down the field with his just straight line speed or in those contested catch situations in the first two months of the season. He did it as a freshman with all those awesome wide receivers on that Alabama team 2018. So I, I think it's, easy right now to say oh yeah he's the number three wide receiver we haven't seen him in a while had he not gotten hurt I think there would be a lot more people on the Jalen Waddell wide receiver one train right now yeah I I mean I think it makes a lot of sense and there have been some comparisons to Henry Ruggs but I look at Waddell and say he plays faster there's there's just much more there than a Ford Mm -hmm. yeah he runs his routes faster I had Henry Ruggs as the number three wide receiver in last year's draft class and a little bit further down than a lot of people because he was, I mean, not, not just a track guy, but when he would catch a slant, he could turn on the afterburners and he would be gone. 
but running his routes, I didn't think he was like a a four two seven or a, a four three one guy, whatever he was. Um, Jalen Waddle is immediately like the fastest guy on the field, beating press at the line. Although he didn't see it very often, and then changing directions in his routes, like. Alabama's offense was kind of, you know, scheme production, a lot of screens, a lot of play action, deep shots. But again, if a, a NFL offensive coordinator or wide receiver coach is looking at all three of these wide receivers and just injecting them into their offense, I think that a lot of offensive coordinators would want Jalen Waddle because his traits, uh, to me, not far exceed, but are, are better than both Jamar Chase and Devontae Smith. Now, of course, you're not being a hater because you have all three of these guys in the top. And that was something exactly. They're all that, good. I, that I wanted to talk about, too, because you have Kyle Pitts seventh. So when you have three wide receivers going four, five, or in your top 50, not going, but in your top 50, four, five, and six, and then another playmaker at seven, it, does this have to do with your view on their positional value? Does it have to do with just the raw talent of these players? And you believe this is kind of where it is for this particular draft? Uh, yeah, that's a good question. With wide receivers, uh, that is baked in. And I wrote it on CBS Sports uh, in this article at the top in the introduction. And we've talked about it on this podcast before. I do have position edition, I call it. Uh, that I get a quote-unquote raw grade for all these prospects in my grading system after watching film. And then, like, quarterbacks get a gigantic boost. It's, like, two or three times higher than, like, offensive tackle, edge rusher. But I boosted up wide receiver a little bit more this year because I, I, I really think, like you, that it's become a premier position in terms of importance. Uh, yes, there are a lot of good wide receivers, but teams need – more than just one or two quality wide receivers in today's NFL. But with Kyle Pitts, I still have tight end relatively low. I think it's very hard to, like exceptionally hard to find a legitimate, like game changing tight end. Kyle Pitts just had a really high raw grade for me because he's just everything you want in a tight end today. And the fact that he's a willing blocker and played in line and played as an H back. Uh, so for the receivers, the position addition boosted them up a little bit. They all had pretty high raw grades initially, but Kyle Pitts, I just think is on another level and miles away from the second tight end in this draft class. Yeah. There are very few guys that come out tight end position where you say, I mean, right away, he could really change an offense. I mean, think about mm -hmm. with, even with TJ Hawkinson and Noah Fant, when they were both hyped up a lot and Irv Smith in that a uh, couple years ago draft, it was, you're still going to have to develop these guys. Like Noah mm -hmm. Fant needs to learn how to be an all around tight end. And, and Hawkinson needs to be, you know, downfield type of guy a little more. And Irv Smith needs to be a blocker more. And all those questions that were there with Pitts, there really aren't questions of whether he can be a game changer. The other thing too is tight end screens, man. If you can run them, I'm sure defenses hate those things. And th yeah. this is a guy who can actually get the ball in his hands and make plays. So, I mean, in terms of your raw talent and what kind of a special prospect he is, I definitely get it. You didn't have Panay Sewell until eight. I think he's going to be drafted really high though. And again, this is not hating on Panay Sewell. He's still in your top 10, but did you consider having him a little higher uh, than this based on his potential, which I think, you know, sky's the limit for Penesu? Yeah, number eight, like that, like how you worded that is perfect because number eight overall, Penesu, is like just based on his film right now. I think when you factor in his potential and you're like projecting him way forward, 
it would not shock me whatsoever if he's like the best player in this draft class, like outside of maybe Trevor Lawrence. Um, because I think on film, and I, I touched on this briefly uh, a while back, that six foot five, three thirty, all the movement skills, the power. I think he's like a tick raw. Like I think sometimes in pass protection, he's so athletic and so powerful and so big, and wasn't facing like a bunch of future first rounders in the Pac-12 that he could kind of just rely on all of his physical traits. At times he can get a little lungy, like at the second level, he's so fast getting there that he's almost like beating linebackers to where he believes they should be. Um, but that's like very much nitpicking with him. And I think that's why in my grading system, he didn't like grade out as like the number two overall player, but he was like 19 years old doing all these right. things uh, at Oregon. So yes, with the potential, like if the Bengals picked him at five, if he went to the Dolphins at three, like I wouldn't, you know, say, Hey, he's my number eight player and you draft him at, at number five. That's a C grade. Like I wouldn't necessarily have that line of thinking, but Yes, with potential, Sewell could be much higher. But right now, I think there are like a few minor things that he needs to kind of work on with his footwork, with his, you know, patience that probably will come. I mean, he's, you know, 20 years old at this point once he gets to the NFL. There was last year, we dealt with this with Makai Becton a little bit, Mm -hmm. where there was the way they ran their offense. He didn't have a lot of pure pass sets. So that was a concern. And how is he going to translate to having to pass set all the time? And the answer was not bad because the guy is a monster. And I think that's where you have to start with any of these players is, are you a difference making athlete? Are you far above athletically what other people can be? And for him, I mean, I made a joke on Twitter that they should move him to tight end. The guy moves so well. I mean, that uh, if, if you could block like that and then get the guy in space, that he can run for yardage. Um, yeah. you know, that's that's just how, how well he has in terms of movement skills. So if you're drafting him at the top, if you're the Bengals or something, I think you take him and you don't apologize for it. And you, you don't go, well, you know, he's only eighth on Chris's board, so we're kind of screwed. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> the, the potential is always a, th- a tough thing to factor in. Where is the ceiling? Where is the floor? Is um, something we talk about all the time. So now I'm interested in this. You're first linebacker and positional value factored in here comes in at ninth and you're going to have to help me make sure that I get the pronunciation right because this is a tough one it is uh, Owusu Koromoa right is that right Jeremiah Owusu Koromoa okay perfect Um, but most people have Micah Parsons as being the guy who is um, at the very top so give me what separates Jeremiah one word coverage that a lot of people are even calling Jeremiah Owusu-Koromoa a safety. He's kind of in that same mold, uh, although he's a little smaller, as like Isaiah Simmons last year where some people had him as a safety, some had him as a linebacker. When you watch his film, you see him tracking the ball down the field like on a wheel route 30 yards down the field like he's a safety. And I think Micah Parsons like is more of that traditional linebacker. He's like 6'3", 245. I don't think he's like – you know, Brandon spikes, like he's uh, coming into the NFL, ready to just be good against the run and that's it. But his film does not have a lot of big plays in coverage on it. Micah Parsons is a tremendous pass rusher as a blitzer. And he can literally put his hand in the dirt and like win around the corner, like as an edge rusher. I think there's value there. I talked about it before that. I think uh, that is kind of a new category that I've entered into the linebacker group in my grading system, like how good you are as a pass rusher. But Owusu-Koromoa is a absolute freak 
on the football field athletically. And that's like with any word that, that can kind of get combined into it, athleticism, speed, explosiveness, twitch, change of direction. He is ridiculous. And he plays with such a high motor. I think his instincts are very good. And then like there are times uh, where he's down the field making plays like a safety. They used him a lot as kind of a slot defender. He's not an inside the box player. He's like, a linebacker that needs to be kind of kept clean. But I think in today's NFL, and, and I've said in the past that I would be a little leery picking a linebacker so high, um, I, I want you to be really good and experienced in coverage. Not say, hey, I have the traits, but you got to teach me how to read the quarterback sides. Like you brought up about Eric Kendricks, like so good at reading route concepts. Jeremiah Owusu-Kormoa did that at Notre Dame. He was a slot defender, occasionally in the box, and then sometimes playing even deep in that defense. He really, to me, more so than Isaiah Simmons last year, uh, is the modern prototype for the linebacker spot. He's like six foot two fifteen. Uh, I mean, I wouldn't want him much smaller than that. But if he's like around six foot two twenty, I'm completely fine with that. He's very chiseled. Uh, watch both Clemson games. He was fantastic. And then against lesser competition too. So that would be the separator, his experience in and how well he excelled in coverage compared to Micah Parsons. So I won't be a broken record and talk about Eric Hendricks, but I, too much. But I will say this. Oh, dude, I, I love it. I watched Eric Hendricks run on a go route with Devontae Adams and break up the pass. 30 yards down the field. If you have a guy who can do this, it's as valuable as any defensive position in the entire NFL. I believe that. There's just only a handful of guys who can actually do it. So if he can, then he is a top 10 talent. The only thing that I would be a little concerned about is just that teams still run the football in the NFL, and there are some big guards and centers who can get to the next level. And I watched this with Troy Dye this year. A lot of people love Troy Dye because of his coverage ability. But when those guards were coming to the second level, I mean, they were just shoving him backwards. And this happened with Eric Wilson too, just to continue with the Vikings comparisons. Wilson's only about 220 pounds and it became an issue when they had a free run at him. It was very difficult for him to stick his nose in there and slow down a guard that was coming his way. And look, coverage is way more valuable than run stuffing, but you also don't want to be giving up 15 yard runs all the time because your guy can't stuff a gap. That would be the only concern. But I also think, as you mentioned, that let's say that he struggles with that a bit but a lot of teams are using this three safety type of looks and they're using hybrid yeah, guys him. and things like that I mean there's so many uses for someone like that that even if okay you know what he we put him at linebacker and it, he's just having t- trouble with the run you could put other people in a run situations put him at safety put him at a nickel type of spot I mean there are a lot of things you could do with players like this and I, I think that type of versatility for somebody um, in his position I mean, I, I, I think it makes sense if you're a team drafting high to say, let's get him in the building, and then we'll decide exactly how we want to use him. Yeah, and I think with Owusu Koromoa, it's from a previous point I made that I don't really think the NFL, like in today's NFL, there was this trend, and I think Isaiah Simmons last year was like the prototype. We had Duran James a few years before that, that you needed like this six foot four, 230 pound, like linebacker safety. I just want like three good safeties on the field. And I actually don't care how big they are. We saw the Chiefs. We saw the Buccaneers do that very well, that three safety look in the playoffs. And they didn't have any gigantic safety. I mean, a lot of times when you have, uh, you know, a three or a four wide receiver set, that 
hybrid linebacker safety is going to have to split out on Devonte Adams or a really good slot receiver. You almost want him to be a little smaller. So he's most likely going to be a little bit more agile and more explosive. That's why I like Owusu Koromoa so much because for as much as it's easy to get enamored with the size and how long is he, uh, if, you know, two thirds of his snaps, he has to flex out and play in the slot. He is comfortable doing that. And you literally saw him make game changing plays almost every week from that position. And I think against the run, he's probably not going to be amazing as a rookie, but there are a lot of outside runs in college that he is so fast and so assertive that guards can't even get to him. And when they do, he plays a lot bigger because there's that speed to power conversion. So yes, there's certainly some red flags with the size, but I want my linebacker to basically be a slot cornerback today, especially with those three safety looks. You can call him whatever you want. I think Owusu Kormoa is made for today's NFL. Okay, I won't read the whole thing. So I'm just, I'll go in the style as if I'm scrolling down it and then going, oh, what? Oh, and so that's, that's how I made my notes on what I wanted to ask you. Um, right. Caleb Farley is your first corner, and he's yep. 14th on your board. What does that say about the cornerbacks in this draft? Because it seems to me, I mean, you talk about positional value. Corners are as high as you're going to get, and yet the best one is 14th, which makes me think this is just not your year if you're looking for corners. Well, actually, if you continue to scroll, I have a bunch of corners later. I just don't think it's a very top-heavy corner class. Mm -hmm. And I've certainly done a lot of mock drafts, like Patrick Sertan at number four overall. That's kind of the, I'm not going to say consensus, but people believe that, again, because of the positional value and maybe Patrick Sertan coming from Alabama, the bloodlines, all that, that like he's just like, there's always a corner that goes early, right? Like that's Mm -hmm. the guy. Yep. I, I think it's a good positional group from like 14 to like 40. And you'll see as you scroll down, I have a bunch of corners in this top 50. I think Caleb Farley is similar to Patrick Sertan. They're both like tall outside corners, six foot, six one. Caleb Farley is more athletic than Patrick Sertan, which seems to not make sense because Patrick Sertan's dad was in the NFL. Uh, so you think the genetics would be more in Sertan's favor. Uh, but in terms of what we kind of were just talking about, covering slot receivers, these quick separators, uh, I think Farley is more equipped to do that as a rookie. Sertan can beat you up at the line, uh, run with you down the field, but I think he's a little bit stiff. He kind of reminds me of Trevon Diggs, uh, a better version of Trevon Diggs, who really had an up-and-down early season uh, before he got injured with the Cowboys because he just couldn't stay with those super quick wide receivers. So, no, I, I don't think it's a fantastic cornerback class. Second round late first into the third maybe I think there'll be quality players but I'm not buying like this Patrick Peterson or any corner that is worthy of being like a top five or a top ten pick right and that's what I mean is that if you're looking for your Stefan Gilmore your this guy's going to change your franchise every single one of these guys has their own flaws and to where you could say yeah he'll probably need development it reminds me of a couple of years ago the one where was it DeAndre Baker was the first one off the board like 30 or 31 yeah. 30 yeah i don't think that will happen i think it'll no. be more in the middle of the first round because of the positional value but it reminds me of that where there's no guy Jeff Akuda had a very
very poor first year. But Jeff Okuda was the, like, he is going to be a game changer for you. You draft him in the top five, apologize to nobody, and go forward. With these, I mean, all the guys that you have in your top 50, whether it's Farley or it's Sertan or it's Asante Samuel Jr., again, how old are we? Uh, and, Seriously. <laughs> no, but, but, but every one of them is like, you know, they could go in the middle of the first. They could go early in the second. Some of them even middle of the second, depending on just what the league thinks of them. And that, considering how much the league needs players who can stop the pass from the cornerback position, I think just speaks to, well, there, there isn't that, you know, great strength like maybe the tackle position has in this draft where you're going to have a lot of those guys up toward the top. Yeah, and that's what's like so like what I like about my grading system so much is that like I always say I, I grade a position all at once, move to the next position, and then like when I'm getting ready to, to write something like this or record this podcast to do a top fifty, fill out a top one hundred and work all the way to two fifty, uh that I don't like there's no forcing of like, oh man, there needs to be a corner in the top ten, right? Like there needs to be a wide receiver here. And that's why it's like weird. My top six is quarterback, 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 receiver, receiver, receiver. And when I clicked on my big board tab and I went sort Z to A, it just came out that Caleb Farley was the number fourteen overall player. So there's no like moving around just so there's a good spacing of uh positions and, and that's just kind of how I feel with this class deep like relatively deep but no premier guy all right uh, I hinted at the tackle and I want to talk about that because you got four tackles in the top 25 and five in the top 30 um, as you were organizing these tackles it's such a strong group Rashawn Slater has been talked about as a guy who's very high uh, he's a little lower than Christian Derrissaw on your list how did you organize the tackles of which guys you felt like were going to be uh, in your top 30 players? Well, I think Christian Derisaw from Virginia Tech, it, it seems right now, early March, is like the one of the most slept on prospects in the entire draft class. Like I only have him two spots below Penny Sewell at number 10 overall uh, as my number two offensive tackle. Watch his film from this year. Uh, no, the ACC wasn't littered with like a ton of insane pass rushers, but I mean, Penny Sewell's a freak. Christian Darasaw is like six five, three twenty, three twenty five. He also moves like he could play tight end or, or play guard or play center. Super athletic, and I think he gives you um, the length, the power to anchor in pass protection. Uh, uses his hands well, like dealing with pass rushing moves, sliding back to the inside against an inside move. Like he is very pro ready, similar to Penny Sewell, extremely high floor. Um, I don't know if he has Penny Sewell's upside, but the reason why I have Darasaw ahead of uh, Rashawn Slater is just that he gives you those last little tick boxes of length and power. I think Rashawn Slater will be able to stay at the offensive tackle spot in the NFL, even if he's only like six, three and a half or six, four, um, just over 300 pounds. But I think we could see him deal with, you know, times where he's overwhelmed with how much stronger uh, NFL pass rushers are compared to pass rushers in the big 10. And Christian Darasaw, I think is a little bit further ahead in the length and the strength department. Yeah. The, the Slater, the raw 
just athleticism, the size, the is power, awesome. all those things. Yeah. Um, but, uh, you know, there's another guy that is just not being talked about. I feel like a ton and I, and I know it's draft season. So everybody's being talked about, but I just have not heard his name talked about a lot. And he's in your top 20, which is Tevin Jenkins from Oklahoma state. And this is another guy that has phenomenal numbers by PFF. He has not allowed a sack since 2018. That's something you want to hear. Right. Yeah. Uh, but also gigantic, strong, all, all those things from the physical size perspective. So why did you have them high? I, I mean, I guess I haven't looked at every mock and every top 50 and every top hundred, all those things. I just feel like when I saw him there, I went, Oh, okay. Chris is higher on him than I see a lot of people at this moment. Yeah, I am a little bit higher on him, and I guess uh, with offensive tackles, it's not that I, I don't want to project upside whatsoever. Like, and, and I'm a, a big advocate of like the predictive powers of you know measured athleticism and stuff. But I guess with blockers, like I want them to come in with you know some degree of power or weight to them that you know it, I know it. There's a lot of these offensive linemen that that aren't ready for the power and they're not even close to being NFL strong, maybe by year two or year three, like with the Vikings, Brian O'Neill, like got bigger and got stronger and he's become a really good right tackle. Um, if I'm going to draft a premier position and we have this four year window on this cheap rookie deal before offensive tackles make a lot of money. Like I don't want to waste a year or two where he needs to be in the weight room and eat more and whatever. Tevin Jenkins is very, effortlessly strong he's a redshirt senior you could factor that in maybe he was you know aided by the fact that he was a little bit older but very very strong in his anchor he is a nasty finisher in the run game uh the length is there I think he's a pretty good athlete is he as good of an athlete as Christian Darson? no and that's why I have him a little bit lower um but I think Slater gives you more upside I have him a few spots behind Jenkins but I think Jenkins comes in as a rookie plays right tackle, and you really don't have to worry about that position for at least four or five years. Yeah, his size immediately just jumps off the page to me. As And the other thing, too, is just by a statistical perspective, it sort of says, look, this guy has done this a lot, a lot of pass sets, a lot of – I mean, that's a passing offense, obviously. They throw the ball all the time. He's had a lot of experience doing that against good competition, maybe not SEC competition where it's guys who are going to get drafted in the first round all the time, but it's good competition and it's great numbers, and that is a place to start for me because a lot of times mm-hmm. if, if you see – tackles giving up a lot of sacks it usually means does the guy maybe not focus as well as he needs to or is there a technical issue or something like that and then you're usually just projecting on purely is the guy huge what type of athleticism yeah and that's where I think that you know some mistakes get made and this is why I wonder how the combine will be affected this year because it's like well, in the past, the guy is a great combine. All of a sudden, you're shooting up the board. Colton Miller is an example of this. Like, wow, oh, my gosh, what a combine. You're shooting up the board when maybe you were more of a second-round prospect, and mm-hmm. that's where you should have gone. So I'll be interested to see how that impacts things. But just from a numbers perspective, uh, he has some of the best of the best. Now, I want to ask you about the defensive line because I was personally attacked by this defensive line uh, ranking here. Your first yeah, I'm sorry. defensive lineman <laughs> is 34th, and it's not the guy that I like the most. Uh, now you have also this Christian Barmore is on your top 50, so you didn't completely leave him off, but it is not Christian Barmore, which I think would come as a big surprise that it is 
uh, Levi on 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 Wazerki. Right. Yep. I get it. Uh, Levi on Wazerki. Explain. Yeah, I think with Anwazerki, he is a little bit more athletically capable. And I think watching Anwazerki and Christian Barmore, like their film is kind of similar that at times they both look like, you know, top 25, top 20 talents because they, they're pretty strong. They are, have really heavy hands. They know how to use their hands uh, at times, but then in, other quarters, other games, you watch them and they're just kind of complacent, uh, grappling with a, a guard or a center, um, and aren't really getting up the field with a lot of, like, a, a high level of frequency in terms of creating pressure. Now, I do think with Anwazurke and Barmore, um, they played kind of out of position. Like, they both were playing, like, nose tackle at times. Barmore is a little bigger and taller. Um, and they did have to two gap a lot and they're both good run defenders, but I think again, and again, maybe I'm, I'm not a, as, as high on upside as other people when I'm, uh, you know, in my grading system, but I think there is a projection like you're saying, okay, I think if we put Christian Barmore or Levi Anwazurke in a almost purely pass rushing role, then they can be really good, but we just haven't really seen them do that. That's why I still like them. I think they're both somewhat inconsistent. The flashes are there, but I think, again, you are hoping and projecting. It's not something that you have seen and can point to on film. Now, maybe I'm being unfair, so you'll have to tell me if I'm being unfair. But I just loved what Christian Barmore did in the college football playoff. And for me, that's the most important. I mean, not just that it's a big game and, you know, whatever. It's more about who you're going up against. And that Ohio State interior offensive line was as close as you're going to get, I think, to an NFL interior offensive line in college football. They looked like, you know, there's guys that were getting drafted. Uh, Wyatt Davis was a guy that he just destroyed that day. And, you know, I tend to think to, like, and, and this is just sort of a reach example, but I remember Bradley Chubb going up against Brian O'Neill, and that was the only tape I wanted to see because it was the only really great player that he played, and you saw, okay, well, sometimes he got beat, but he's got the physical talent to stay with him, and you know, obviously Brian O'Neill has worked out pretty well. I kind of think of it the same way. It's like, I don't really care what he did against this team or that team. I care what he did against the best. And it was really good against the best. And I also wonder, now maybe this is this is being unfair too, but where somebody plays is a hard, it's a tricky beast, right? It's like, Definitely. well, you know, we've seen guys succeed from who cares state and we've seen guys succeed from Alabama. But Washington, you get a lot of opportunities to rush the passer. You know, they're, they're playing in wide open offenses and I don't know. I mean, is it a little easier to look like you're making a difference when you're only playing against, you know, a lot of maybe, you know, five man protections and things like that. I don't know. I, I don't know how much of a factor that would be for you, but I just loved what Barmore did in his, his last two games. And that was sort of the last impression that he left on me. No. And I think that's a good point that when I watch film, like I go to the marquee matchups first and like you said not because it's a big game and and you know let's see how clutch they are it's you want to see Christian Barmore against you know Ohio State and against Notre Dame you don't want to see them against Central Michigan or (laughs) Tennessee State like like that and a lot of times I think watching film and and when I see uh you know other um like commentary out there it's hey look at how good this guy was, and you're like, oh, his sacks were against uh, the two Mac opponents that they played and the bottom of the barrel in their conference. So 
that's probably will lead to Christian Barmore getting picked uh, earlier than I have him, you know, in the thirties or forties. Um, but I, I agree with you too, that I think there is just projection and that you see some inconsistencies in both of their games. And even at Alabama, I don't think Christian Barmore was really fully unleashed to rush the passer very often. We know uh, that yes, it's a factory there. Nick Saban coaches them up well. There's a, a long history of defensive linemen from the Crimson Tide going in the first round and being pretty good pros of late. Uh, but we know that they two gap, and it, it's kind of hard to tell. Like, were they really trying to rush on that play, or right. were they not? Like, so I think with Anwazirke and Barmore, similar players, pretty close in my rankings. Uh, long, kind of unique bodies. Like Anwazirke is like six three two ninety. Uh, Christian Barmore is like 6'5", 3'10". Are you going to maybe play him out at like the five technique, five technique more, which is not really uh, a sexy position that's going to get 10 or 15 sacks. So that's why I'm a little bit lower, but early second round, I think they could be really good value picks. Yeah, I was going to say, it looks like Barmore is going to go higher than Anwazirki, but maybe yeah, if you're looking for if they're close or equal prospects, it's not like you have them way far away. I'm just giving you a hard time. But um, if if they're similar prospects, though, you might be able to, because Barmore had such a good college football playoff, get a better value on, on Wazerke. All right, last mm-hmm. one that stuck out to me is you waited until number 46 to give some flowers to a running back, Najee Harris, who is a running back. So we have to automatically go, eh, a running back. But he is really darn good. So you've got him at the end of your list and Travis Etienne as your two running backs in the top 50. Um, you're thinking on having running backs the, way, the, the place that they did because based on just football player against their competition, Harris and Etienne are both fantastic. Harris is one of the best players in college football. But just kind of explain why you have him where you have him on your list. Well, I have two running backs in the top 50 uh, because I really think that Najee Harris and Travis Etienne are special talents. So you could hear that and say, hey, well, then why don't you have them higher? Well, positional value. And we've talked about it in my position edition. They get zero boost. Like it starts at running back and I work my way up or it could start a quarterback and work my way down to running back. They get no positional boost. So his raw grade, Najee Harris and Travis Etienne, like were relatively high. They just didn't get that boost. Um, and I believe that's like the highest I've had running backs in the last couple of years, mm. um, unless I'm totally forgetting someone. But number 46 for Najee Harris and what, ETN 48. I have Najee Harris ahead of Travis Etienne, and I don't know if this is like hot take alert. The first category that I have in my grading system for running backs is elusiveness. And I actually think Najee Harris is more elusive than Travis Etienne. I think Travis Etienne as that slasher type that's mostly north and south and is going to be really efficient and is crazy explosive and can pick up an eight or a 10 yard gain when the blocking really is good, but really only should get him a four or five yard gain because of his speed. That's what he gives you. Najee Harris, I think is better making defenders miss and they're both tremendous receivers, not just out of the backfield, line them up in this slot on both of their films. You can watch them catch passes deep down the field uh, so that's why I'm so high on them because I truly think that they are, you know, feature back types that fit the modern day NFL. You can use them in the pass game. We know how valuable that is for the running back spot. And just watching ETN's film this season, I was expecting uh, just from watching so many Clemson games live, like, oh, this guy's going to be just juking out every ACC linebacker and corner. 
that's not really his game. He wants to hit the front side on a zone play and just turn on the Jets, and he did that a lot. I think Najee Harris finds the cutback lane a little bit easier, and at 6'1", 230, uh, linebackers just bounce off him. We've seen the hurdling, too. I think he's a crazy athlete. Uh, so middle of the second round, if a team really needs a feature back and wants to use them in the receiving game, I would be fine with one of those teams. Maybe not the Detroit Lions after picking DeAndre Swift, um, but I would be fine with Najee Harris or Travis Etienne being second-round picks. Well, and Harris, as you mentioned, there's sort of a, hey, this guy's the playmaker, this one's the pure runner, but Harris can absolutely catch the ball down the field. He's, he's just got a, a really good, I think, sense for body control might be the word mm-hmm. for it. Definitely. or just. I just think of being coordinated, being athletic in that type of way. We always talk about athletic is how tall is the guy, how fast is he, how far can he jump. But there's also the, like, detailed movements. So can he be running full speed, get his body around, and get his hands up and catch the football, which I've seen him do? Can he jump up at the right time? All those things, he can do that. The other thing, too, is – the NFL is just not with us yet on throwing downfield to running backs. I mean, Alvin Kamara does it. That's about it. You don't even see it a lot from Christian McCaffrey. Aaron Jones every once in a while goes down the field. But someday the NFL will join us and running rail routes and wheel routes over and over and over and over again because you can succeed on them. And maybe when you have Drew Brees throwing it to Alvin Kamara, it's more effective than most. Uh, it's not It's not the easiest thing to do, but – um, those are usually there, and I feel like with these running backs, you could do it. But if receiving value is a huge part of it for ETN for you, you could look at like how many teams are using these guys as actual receivers on a regular basis. There might be two or three in the entire NFL. So if you're drafting him, have that as part of your plan. But I don't think it's super likely that someone drafts him and has that as a huge part of their plan. Like, oh, he's half wide receiver, half running back. I, I doubt it. So – Harris to me would be a little bit higher. And I like your point about elusiveness. You get a screen in space. Can you make plays? Can you dodge tacklers? Can you shed tacklers? And can you see the field um, kind of like, uh, you know, the matrix or whatever to dodge people. And I think that Harris has all of those abilities. And even though, I mean, that's, that's the great thing about running backs, even though all of us are like, eh, be careful. There's still that, but in the second round, right. And that's kind of how I think of both of these guys. Yeah, and I think uh, if you take away uh, using Travis Etienne as a, a fixture of your passing offense like they did at Clemson, I mean, he was getting three or four screens a game like every single week and then used as a slot receiver, then I think you still have a super talented player because he's crazy fast and the contact balance is well above average. But I think at that point, like, it sounds almost blasphemous because he's had this crazy, um, illustrious, long collegiate career at Clemson. I think he would just be like a good running back that you wouldn't think about picking in the second round. So really, you need to use him as a right. maybe not primary weapon in your pass game, but certainly someone that you want to throw the football 50, 60, 70 times a season, at least in, in terms of targets. Same thing with Najee Harris. But I do think just as a pure running back, the way that I grade running backs, Najee Harris came out a little bit higher, elusiveness and contact balance, um, just a little bit better. Okay. Is there anything else, any other bold yes. rankings that you have that you wanted to mention? Okay, go ahead. There's one. I, I am out of questions or criticisms. No, I appreciate all the questions, too, <laughs> kind of off the top of the head. Uh, I have to talk about my number one edge rusher, Aziz Ojulari 
from Georgia, just because edge rusher is a premier position. Um, and I think it's a pretty good deep class, similar to corner. Like he's my number one edge. He's not until number 18 overall, but then I have a bunch of edge rushers throughout my top 50. Uh, and certainly a lot of teams are looking for edge rushers. It's a little bit uh, away from the consensus. I think a lot of people have Ojulari like in their top three or four edge rushers. I have him number one and we could probably, you know, dedicate an entire podcast to this. I don't know how amazing of a run defender he's going to be even by his second season in the NFL. Cause he's only like six, three, two forty, two forty five. But man, as a pass rushing specialist, his burst, his bend around the corner and the fact that he has like three or four pass rushing moves where it's like clear that before the snap, Ojulari knows, all right, I'm going to use my spin move here, or I'm going to use my outside speed rush and then swim back to the inside. Uh, I love like those three elements of being a pass rusher. If you are explosive, if you're bendy and you can kind of flatten and dip to the quarterback and then you have pass rushing moves, then that seemingly does it for me. And that's where in the past, a lot of edge rushers have been really high on my board. I think with Quiddy Pay, uh, you still need to see more from him in terms of the pass rush move department. He's big, he's physical. Uh, he was number one on Bruce Feldman's freak list. We've heard that a million times. But I think if Ojulari was at the combine, if, if it had happened last weekend, this would not be controversial. Because if when you watch his film at Georgia in the SEC, you see the bird, like first step quickness and then the ability to sustain his speed while he's dipping under an offensive tackle after using a swipe move. Like that is the complete package. I think we'd be talking about him as a top 15 pick because, yes, you need – players that can still set the edge and be good run defenders. But if I was a team that, man, I really need to upgrade my pass rush, I'm picking old Ulari and just his specialized skill set uh, well over, or I guess not well over, because I have two spots ahead of Quiddy Pay. But I'm picking him over Quiddy Pay, Jalen Phillips, any of the other edge rushers in this class. And and this is an interesting sort of team-to-team type of decision. Like, do you need yeah. a guy who is going to fill gaps for you and deal with run lanes, or do you want a guy who's just going to get after the passer? It really depends on how you want to design your defense for where he might go. If he is so far ahead, though, this is one thing that I would just suggest to NFL teams. Like, get the guy who could get after the passer because that is the harder thing to replace by far. And it's the most valuable thing. Like, okay, you might give up a few more runs to that direction because the guy was trying to get in the backfield as opposed to doing exactly what he was supposed to do in the run or a a bigger tackle pushes him back. So you might need a little more support from your linebackers or your defensive tackles, but sacks, pressures. These are statistically things that are changing games. If you get a sack, your chances to score go down significantly. If you get a pressure, the quarterback's rating goes down by 20 to 40 points. And these things are just super valuable. And we saw even, I don't, I, I hate to bring up the Super Bowl, you know, whatever is, is a reason, but like, if you could get after the passer like that, you can change the game for any quarterback. And so value that first over everything else. The other thing too is, you know, maybe you can pack on some, some muscle for the guy. If that, if that's an issue is his exact weight. Well, you might be able to work on that a little bit. What you can't work on is, like you said, burst, pass rushing moves, a commitment to like growing that pass rush package as well to be unpredictable. Like those are things that are very hard to come by. And there's a lot of dudes who are big and strong in the NFL, but don't sack nobody. 
So that's that's my little concern <laughs> with with Quiddy Pay. Honestly, it's like, yeah, you know what, freaks, a lot of them. Those tackles are used to going up against freaks. So if you don't have moves, that's going to be a problem for you. Yeah, and and two more points off what you just said. Ojulari six three and two forty. I think he could add ten to fifteen pounds easily. But I always am confused, even in today's NFL. Like Von Miller was like six two two forty in two thousand eleven, and like he's like I don't think Ojulari is Von Miller. I think he's shades of Von Miller at times, not as powerful as Von Miller was. I don't think like 245 for a pass rushing specialist is like this super undersized, like what is he even doing on the field type of player? If he was six foot 245 and looked like he had no more weight that he could gain to his frame, that would be a little concerning. But at six foot three, you could be 250, 255 relatively easily. And I agree with you. Like, I think with Quiddy Pay, there is upside because he's this freak of nature and he's like 6'4", 280. Um, I don't know if the production was there at Michigan. He only played four games this year. And last point on Ojulari, uh, he created a pressure over, tw- I think it was 21% of the time that he rushed the passer. Wow. That was higher than, That's nuts. yeah, that was higher than Chase Young last year. Like that is crazy production. It was in the SEC uh, against Tennessee, against all those big teams, Alabama, he did well. And then in that, uh, bowl game against Cincinnati against their tackle James Hudson, who was at the Senior Bowl, um, who's probably going to be a second or a third round pick, maybe fourth rounder. Uh, very athletic. Like Ojulari was the best player on the field in that game. So and he's only 20 years old. He's going to be 20 when he's drafted. So like all of those elements kind of factored in. Uh, and I was like, man, like my grades with the bendiness, explosion, handwork, uh, just led me to having him as the number one edge rusher, even knowing full well that he might even be maybe a liability against the run, but I'll just take him on second down and third and long all day over someone that's like good across the board. Right. What we need is arm lengths and hand sizes. For I know. Pro things. days I get mean, here already. Geez, Come on. Right? We'd be able to say, well, he does have arms that are however long. He's got a wing. Exactly. He may only be 6'3", but he's got a 6'6 wingspan, so that makes up the mm-hmm. difference. But I don't know. I don't know how long his arms are. Looks pretty long. If you've ever if you've ever met anyone who plays NFL defensive tackle, they usually have, it's just, it looks like they grew up under power <laughs> lines. It makes no sense for how long the arms are and how huge the hands are. All right, man. I appreciate you completely uh, tearing this apart. You weren't too mean, which was which was good. We got some good conversation. Um, in oh, and one other point: get to CBSSports.com right now because one player and we won't dive into him. I do not have in my top fifty. Gregory Rousseau from Miami. I mm. just did not see it with him whatsoever. I wrote about that for CBS Sports today uh, to kind of break down why, because he's like a consensus, like top 20 pick, number one or number two edge rusher. He's the one guy this year that I just do not see it with whatsoever. Uh, I don't know if we'll talk about that at length in a podcast because next episode dropping Thursday morning, we're going to get back to the regularly scheduled programming uh, QB conversation series. We're going to talk about Justin Fields. Just kind of had this weird precipitous fall from like the number two overall pick n- consensus, number two quarterback to clearly the number three. And maybe in some team's eyes, the number four quarterback in this draft class for Matthew Collar. I'm Chris Trapasso. Thank you for listening to the prospect podcast.